You know I've been going through the Minor Prophets for a while now, right? It's, it's, been a, it's been a while, and not all of the times I've had to give messages have been the most positive. I don't know if you've noticed this, but the Minor Prophets are not the most uplifting books in their totality, usually. I mean, there are some of them uh, we'll get to that are actually just condemnation of the people of Israel. That's pretty much what they are. And of course, that's generally true of them, but that is not true of Micah, which is strange because if you've been following along for the first three chapters of Micah with me, you've heard a lot of judgment and damnation going to the people of Israel. And you see, this is one of the times where I, I have a kind of a love-hate relationship with the way we face books of the Bible and we, and we preach them. Uh, and don't get me wrong, I think this is the right decision to preach through books of the Bible and do it point by point. But there is a failing that comes by doing it this way. It's a pretty simple failing. You see, each of these books are actually designed to be read as a totality. We're de they're designed to be understood as a full thing. I'd actually argue the whole Bible is like that too, which you know is kind of hard because the Bible, it would take you 72 hours to read the whole thing cover to cover. Micah's a little bit easier. It takes me about 17 minutes, not that I've done it. 17 minutes, 22 seconds, in case you're wondering. But it's important to see the book as a totality because there is a context for all of the judgment you see in the first three chapters of Micah and indeed all of the judgment you see in the Bible. This is a strange argument coming from, uh, you know, somebody that they'd call a fundamentalist, but the Bible is not primarily about the damnation of sin. It's about our salvation from sin specifically in Jesus Christ, but it's about not primarily about our evil, but the good God who saves us. The context that we have all of these negative things in is the all-surpassing greatness, goodness, and glory of God. And I say that with some trepidation because no matter how I say it, I'm understating. I could speak for hours and hours and days and days and tell you all about the glories of the God we serve and I still wouldn't scratch the surface. As the old hymn goes, if all of the sea was turned into ink and the skies were turned into parchment and everybody in the world were scribes by trade, we still couldn't write all of the glories of God. It wouldn't be possible. Because God is glorious and good. And you see, that's kind of the point that you get from reading the totality of Micah instead of just one or two passages of Micah. And so... It is, I am still going to be preaching through texts of the Bible, but I want us to be clear as I begin here that Micah chapter 4 
comes after Micah chapters 1 to 3 and before Micah 5. It's in a context. But I'm going to say something a little strange here. I think it's more that we should see Micah 1 to 3 in the context of Micah 4 then we should see Micah 4 in the context of Micah 1 to 3. Because there's one thing that's more fundamental. The more fundamental part is not God's judgment. God's judgment is true, but that's not the most fundamental part about the gospel. The most fundamental part about the gospel is not that we are sinners, but that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from works of the law. Bit of a spoiler alert because that's going to be what we're going to be talking about next time I preach in Micah 5. But for Micah 4, I've got a couple of things that I need to talk about here because in Micah 4 you see a very powerful image of the kingdom of God. It says that the days shall come. It shall come to pass in the latter days, that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established. And it keeps going on and on about all these great and glorious things that are going to happen. It shall come to pass. And it's important that we see this because, and this is coming from another guy I've been reading. I've been reading this interesting little book by a guy named Gavin Ortland. Uh, it's called Why God Makes Sense in a World That Doesn't. He's a pastor and philosophy guy, and he is into uh, a lot of apologetics. And like most apologi apologists in the world today, apologists, by the way, in case you're wondering, people who make a defense for the faith. They're not people who apologize a lot. But he quotes, uh, and, and apologists really like this guy named Blaise Pascal, 17th century French philosopher, theologian, and mathematician. Uh, most people would probably know him more as the mathematician these days. But anyway, in his famous book, The Pensee, Blaise Pascal proposed a threefold strategy for commending God, particularly the Christian God, to those who don't believe. And he, he quotes Pascal here. Men despise religion. They hate it and are afraid that it might be true. The cure for this is to first show that religion is not contrary to reason, but worthy of reverence and respect. Next, to make it attractive. Make good men wish it were true. And then three, how that it is true. So, and he summarizes the idea like this. Show religion first to be respectable, show religion to be desirable, and show religion to be true. Now, being an academic guy, a guy who likes sitting in his basement and reading books, don't judge me. I'm the kind of guy who goes more for point three, the true. The Bible is a lot more holistic than that. One of the things that we have to recognize from Micah 1 to 3 is that the gospel is, the, is respectable. You see, God is not in favor of evil. In fact, there will come a day when evil will end. One of the good points that you see in the judgments of God throughout the scriptures is that evil has a limit. 
But then there's the point two. We can talk about point three, some other point over nachos, but point two is that it's desirable. God is good. Now, that's a true statement. That's a limited statement. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, none of us understand that statement to the level that it is true, that God is good. Because God is good in the way that, well, everything else is kind of a participation in his goodness. The Bible says that every good and perfect gift comes down from our Father, uh, Father above. Th th that's because anything is good because it participates in God's goodness, not vice versa. And we'll see that here in Micah chapter 4. Because... I'm feeling a little bit understated here in my ability to tell you about the goodness of God because it's far more transcendent. You see, where evil, I said, has a limit, there will come a day when evil will end. The goodness of God doesn't have a limit. We don't grasp that <laughs> because we're finite creatures and we don't understand the concept of eternality and and. and Total and you know completeness and that kind of thing. We imagine that goodness is, has some limits and we imagine that evil is the limit of goodness. No, no. Goodness is the limit of evil, but it transcends evil greatly. Some people will tell me that, the, that, that in order for good to exist, evil must exist. That is a lie. It is fundamentally untrue. Because evil is good broken. And brothers and sisters, evil will end. That's not a good thing if you're thinking about your own evil right now. But as you face suffering, as you face destruction, as you face all sorts of things that the real world is, has. I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not lying here, am I? You guys know that the world is not completely good. I mean, we are the most freakishly wealthy people imaginable. Like if you go back through all of history and you look at how people have had to live throughout history and you know the kinds of things that people have to deal with, we are freakishly wealthy. And yet we all know the emptiness that comes from our own sinfulness, from the sinfulness of others, the pain and hurt that comes even from people that love us and that we love. In fact, most especially from people we love, people we respect. I mean, there's no real pain like the pain of betrayal. And we know that that's true. God knows that too. And yet, in the face of all of that, here we see in Micah chapter 4, God telling us, first of all, that evil is going to end, and second of all, goodness won't. But I want to be clear here, and you can see this in the text of Scripture, suffering is real. 
It's a real thing. It's interesting when you look into Micah, one of the things that Christians sometimes have, we, we can be flippant about evil and suffering. Uh, we, we have a bunch of these phrases that are true. You know, God doesn't do anything unless he has a reason for it. That's true. But we often use that as a way to shut up suffering because suffering makes us uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable. I mean, that's kind of the point of suffering. If you're suffering, you're not comfortable. But it also makes me uncomfortable when I have to deal with the suffering of others. And so I sometimes say true things to try and shut that up. And Christians fall into that camp so often. And it's interesting to note that if you, as you can see in Micah, God doesn't fall into that trap. Just, just read verses 9 and 10, first part of 10 actually. He says, now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor? And the answer he says is yes, because he continues with, writhe and groan, of da O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. God does not mince words with the people of Israel. He tells them the truth. Because of your sinfulness, because of the sinfulness of others, because of the sinfulness that's all around, because of, you know, chapters one to three, go back and listen to those if you want to get those. Punishment will come. That's going to happen. And, and this is one of the reasons why as a pastor and as, as, as pastors generally, we train people to say, uh, we need to be prepared for our people for suffering because I can guarantee you it's going to come. Anyone who wants to live a life holy in Christ Jesus will face persecution. That's, that's a promise of God that doesn't end up on coffee mugs very much. But it's true. Uh, you're welcome to put that on a coffee mug and give it to me, by the way, just saying. You see, the truth is that what we see about the goodness of God here in Micah 4 doesn't change the fact that punishment and suffering really do happen. It's, the truth is stark and it's blunt. You're going to go to Babylon. And it's worse than that because it's not just because they're going to face punishment. As we learned through chapters 1 through 3 and all of the rest of the minor prophets and most of the major prophets as well, they deserve it. And I don't know how many of you have had this experience because it's, it's a difficult experience to have. You know that realization you get when you know you're suffering. You know that people you love and who care for you are suffering. And you know for a fact it's your fault. That really hurts. And that's an understatement. And that's what the people of Israel are facing here. The punishment that God is bringing upon them, they fully and wholly and unequivocally deserve. That probably hurts. It's a different kind of suffering to know that. It's, it's in some sense a good suffering because you know that it's not, it means that the universe still makes sense because, yeah, I probably should have done this, but 
it still hurts. But you see, God's response to the suffering is not what we would expect. I, a shameless plug for Sunday school in the morning here. Uh, I teach a Sunday school class, and one of the things that we were dealing with today was the Abrahamic covenant. We, we looked at the fact that God actually, in response to the evil of humanity and the transcendent evil of humanity, instead of destroying us all entirely like we completely deserve, chose a man and began the process of saving his people throughout history. Because, and that's what we see here in Micah 4. Because God redeems. Again, verse 10. Writhe and grow, O daughter of Jerusalem, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be punished and destroyed and taken. No. There you shall be rescued. Just as clear as the punishment that's true, God says, there you shall be rescued. In case you're worried a bit, it doesn't just say rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now, I'm going to point this out. Redemption and rescue are actually two different concepts. Rescue means you're taken away from the evil that happens. Redemption is what happens when God determines that he will change the way justice functions for you. You are going to be redeemed. You're going to be taken from evil and placed into the column of good. How is that going to happen? Well, that's going to be in, in Micah 5, and we'll talk about that next time I'm up. But God says that he will redeem you from the hands of your enemies. Now many nations are assembled against you saying, let her be defiled and let her eyes gaze upon, let our eyes gaze upon Zion, but they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. In case you're interested and just be careful to make sure of this, that's an all caps Lord, that means Yahweh. I have a brother in Christ who keeps repeating and I kind of agree with him. We should probably actually just translate that as what it says, the Tetragrammaton, which is not actually Lord. We sometimes paper this over as if we're talking about something straight. The Lord is going to say this. They do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plans, that he has gathered them as she's to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples and shall devote to gain to their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. You see, God is going to change the fortunes of Israel in the coming days. The, the, the people who have faced punishment and faced adversity, God is going to work through them to bring about his ultimate purpose and his ultimate reign. Notice I'm at the end of, uh, of Micah chapter 4 here. We're going back to the early part in a few minutes. And their gain, their wealth, their power, their might that has been massed against the people of Israel, against the people of God, God will instead use that for his own glory. 
And it doesn't matter if all of the kingdoms around them are massed against them. It doesn't matter if they have enemies all around them. It doesn't matter because the one who is going to do this is the Lord Yahweh. And he is far greater than anything we can ever imagine. But we'll get there. But it's even more extreme than that. In that day, declares the Lord, this is, I'm going skipping back a little bit to verse 6. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted, and the lame I will make a remnant. And those who were cast off, a strong nation. And the Lord will reign. Notice, by the way, all caps, Lord, Yahweh. Will reign. By the way, that's going to be very important when we talk about Micah 5. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it shall come. The former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. God will reign. He will work all of this together for his good. Even the people who he has afflicted, he will use to show his own glory. And they will be blessed because they will all be living in God's kingdom. I think we're ready to begin dealing with Micah chapter 4 verse 1 because that's what we're talking about here. You've heard me already preach about this text, by the way. I did deal with it the last sermon, uh, but we're going to be talking about it again because I think it's important to talk about this again. It says in verse 1, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. Now, I think this is probably figurative. It might also be literal, but I think it's at least figurative of the fact that there will come a day when the mountain of the Lord, that is God's home, God's place of, of rest, God's worship will be over all other mountains. Now, mountains oftentimes in human parlance tend to be places of holiness, places of, you know, bridges between earth and God. You know, we talk about Mount Olympus, you know, things like that. Play, people would often build temples at the top of ziggurats so that you could be closer to God. And he says, the hill of Zion, the hill of the Lord will be above all other mountains. That is to say, God will be above all other gods. There will be no greater authority than God, and we'll know it. It's true now, by the way. God is more authoritative than everyone else. God is the greatest God. There is no God like the God of Israel. But we'll know it. There will come a day when everyone will see who God is. He will be a greater authority. This is reflected even further in verse, verse 3 here. 
He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes between strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall lift, not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. This is a, a promise that many people quote and talk about everywhere about how the peace of the world would come in the future. Notice why the peace is coming. It's because everybody recognizes who God is. His rule and reign is true. People will understand that the goodness of, that he shows is ultimate goodness. And when he makes decisions between nations, it's a good decision. And everyone will know it. And because of that, there will be no reason to go to war anymore. I look forward to that day. I mean, imagine it. Right now, war happens because people have actually both have a point. Uh, I'm not going to go into geopolitics, but almost every time that you see a war somewhere in history, it's because two people at some way, in some level, are right. It's just that they have different things that they're right about. Uh, you don't believe me because, of course, there are people who we, be historically speaking, we have said are evil. Well, it is actually true that people want to be uh, treated well and treated kindly. That's one of the reasons that they uh, tend to have put up dictators over them to try and get the things that they desire, they think that they deserve. They may actually be right. Usually oppressed people are the ones who first come up with dictators or at least people who perceive themselves to be uh, that. And so they have a point. But then, you, they, then the dictator comes out and tries to destroy the enemy, and, and the enemy realizes, well, we want to keep the things that we have. And they have a good point, because you shouldn't actually be attacking other people. But both sides have a point. That doesn't mean that both sides are right, but it does mean it's really hard to deal with the issues here. The reason people disagree with one another is because they really disagree. It's not because one person is evil and one person is good. It's usually because, well, both people are evil and they have a good point at some level. I mean, you know this in, your, in the fights that, uh, again, I'm not married, so I don't know this personally, but I, I hear this is true in marriages. Like when you have a fight with your husband or your wife, the chances are really good they have a point. Even when you're right, at least at some level, even when you are the one who is most right, it doesn't change the fact that at some level they're somewhat right. And because of that disagreement, and because of the fact that we don't quite trust the other person to care about our, our own desires, we don't trust them, and so we fight. We go to war over it. There will come a day when God will take over that role and he will judge between nations. That's what it means here. And because he's judging between nations, there's no need for fighting anymore. Won't that be great? There'll come a day when, you know, we're not going to be sitting around reading the Bible and trying to decide which, which, which version of our understanding of the Bible is correct and then going over and fighting each other over it because God's just going to say, no, this is the right way and this is the wrong way. And we're probably all going to find out that we need to be corrected somewhere. There won't be any need for fighting. And his judgment will be obeyed by many, even peoples who right now do not follow God. And it will bring peace. 
But if that weren't enough, God continues. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of Zion, to you it shall come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. The king will reign over all things. Which king shall reign? Wait for Micah 5. But ultimately, in Micah 4, we know it will be the Lord. But this is not all. Again, I'm jumping around a little bit here. Micah verses 6 and 7. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom, whom I have afflicted. Notice this. God has mercy on people. The people I have afflicted. The people, and God doesn't afflict people unless they deserve to be afflicted. Because that's God. He's just. He's always just. But even the people whom he has afflicted, he will redeem. And the lame, the people that he's, he's, he's afflicted, I will make a remnant. And those who are cast off, a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. Whom the Lord has afflicted will be brought together and made a nation. But that's not all. Verses 4 and 5. But they shall sit, every man, under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. By the way, he's talking about all of the nations. The people who've just beaten their, plow, their, their uh, swords into plowshares. No one shall be afraid, for the, the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of his, its God. Small g, by the way. But we walk in the name of the Lord, Yahweh, our God, forever more, forever and ever. You see, God not only provides his rulership and his reign, he provides for people. Each person is sitting under his own fig tree. He's got provision of food and provision of reality. He's comfortable. He knows that God will protect him. He's safe. Those of us who live in the West tend to be a little bit uh, blasé about safety because we generally have it most of the time. It's something that we honestly believe we've got a right to. But I'm, I'm pretty sure that people in Ukraine know exactly what it's like to not have safety and to know the preciousness of what safety is. I'm sure people who've come from countries where they're not actually safe know the blessing of having safety, of knowing that no one will be coming to their door tonight take them away. And that's what God promises for all peoples, ultimately speaking. They will be provided. They'll sit under their, no one shall make them afraid for the most of the Lord of hosts spoken because he is God. And all of this is because ultimately God is good. And I'm going to use a term here that's not actually used in the text. I've been this has been pointed out to me a couple of times. It's not actually in the text. I'm going to say this. God is glorious. And I have a technical reason for saying that. Let's just read one, verses 1 and 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and it shall be lifted up above the hills. Fair enough. 
and the peoples shall flow to it. That's interesting. Uh, peoples don't normally flow. I don't know if you've noticed this. People don't, you know, like move like rivers usually. I mean, it, 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 fluid dynamics doesn't work on things that aren't fluids. And flowing is a fluidy thing. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and we may walk in his paths. Okay, thinking caps for a second. Is that normal? Remember what I said from uh, Blaise Pascal. People don't like religion and are in fact afraid at some level that it might be true. The reasons are pretty simple. It's because it means that there's somebody more powerful than us, that there's a goodness that transcends us. And yet, these nations are saying the phrase, let us go up to the house of the Lord. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. So they even know which God they're talking about. They don't want to go to the God of, you know, the nations. They don't want to go to the God of philosophy. They want to go to the God of Jacob. Why? That he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. People who don't like what they're going to learn don't say stuff like this. I know. Math class. I didn't say, oh, let us go up to the math class. I hate math. Apologies to the mathematicians in the room. And probably also to Blaise Pascal, mathematician, like I said. We don't talk like that. And yet, God promises in Micah chapter 4, verse 2, that the nations are going to say to one another, Come, let us go up to the hill of the Lord. Let us learn from God. Not just any God, the God of Jacob. Why would they say that? And I don't think this is the, the, the proper way to understand this would be, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us. His. That, doesn't sound, that doesn't sound right. They have joy in God. Don't miss that. They have joy in seeking out this God. The God of Jacob, they want to walk in his They want to walk in his paths. They aren't being forced to. The, the, the Lord God, this is before we talk about the Lord actually having authority in the, over all things. This isn't a bare appeal to power, though God has all of the power. They want to know this God. They want to follow him. And you see, that's why I think what we're talking about is a glorious God. 
Not merely an okay God, not merely a true God, but a glorious God that provides joy. Do we feel that? I, I, I ask that not as a rhetorical question. I'm actually thinking that through in my own head. Do I really believe that? Because I'll, I'll admit right now there are a lot of things in my life sometimes that can be more joy-giving than, than this. I mean, I'm 48 years old. I wake up in the morning sometimes and my back doesn't do what it's supposed to do. I feel strange twinges going on in it. And I think, oh my, wouldn't it be great if I, I got joy in a, a chiropractor? I do think that. And yet, what we're seeing here is that ultimately speaking, there's going to come a day when people are going to understand that the greatest joy is to come from seeking the Lord. Sometimes I worry that the reason that Christianity has had so many problems here in North America isn't because we haven't been able to tell people that the Bible is true or that God is true. There are entire faculties of universities set up to just tell you about why we believe that Jesus is true. I don't think it's merely because it, religion needs to be respectable. I mean... Lots of people are going to say, and it's changing a little bit right now, but lots of people are going to say that going to church is a respectable thing to do. I mean, after all, you get to listen to some guy in a suit. The problem is, so rarely do we actually recognize, do we actually express that the God we worship is good, that he gives joy, that his, at his right hand are joys everlasting. So often we imagine that our Christianity is about duty more than it is about joy. Now, it is about duty. I mean, don't get me wrong. Y yes, you should actually read your Bible and pray every day and you'll grow, grow, grow. Y yes. but we should be like this. And praise God, there will be a day when we will be like this. When we will say to one another, come, let us go to the house of the Lord. I get some feelings of this, by the way, during church this morning, you know, when we were singing songs together. It's one of the reasons, by the way, why Christians have this thing where we sing songs all the time. It's because it's about joy. We are to enjoy God. Because, and not because, not because we need to screw up our self-will to be able to enjoy God. That's kind of messed up. That's not how joy works. It's because the people here see who God is and understand who God is and see that he's glorious and good. I so wish that I would be able to see the glory of God like this. 
Sometimes I do. I just get inklings of it from time to time, and it's amazing when I do. But there will come a day when God will show his glory completely, when we will know that he is joy incarnate, that he is good, not in merely the sense that he's good like, I don't know, a good pizza is good, but good in the way that a good pizza, because you enjoy it, is just a small foretaste of the goodness of God. And you see, that, change, that would change the way we live. That's one of the reasons why I think that this passage is so important for the people of Israel to understand just as they face their greatest persecution. They are going to lose Israel. They're going to lose Jerusalem. They're going to lose the Temple Mount. They're going to go to Babylon. They're going to lose everything. Their families, their friends. They're going to lose their religion and all of the strength that they thought they had. They're going to lose it. And God tells them, there will come a day when people will see who I am and they will be able to understand and seek after me. It's important for us too, by the way. Uh, again, I know this is a hard thing to say, and it's not something that usually people who stand up in front, in front of churches say a, a lot, but they probably should more. You're going to suffer. If you're not suffering now, don't just wait, it'll happen. You don't need to go looking for it, it's gonna come. If you're suffering now, don't be surprised by that. And don't think God has forgotten you. He hasn't. God actually recognizes the, the problems you're going through. Whatever, whatever thing you're going through, he recognizes it and understands it. And worse, he's using it, well, better, he's using it for his glory and for your good. But that doesn't change the fact that it's going to be real and it's, you're going to face it. But in the midst of that, God is greater than any of this. And there will come a day, it's not today, well, I don't think it's today. It'd be nice if it was, but <laughs> amen. But there will come a day when God will make all things right, when we will see him as he truly is when the nations will understand that he is far greater than anything else we could ever ask or imagine, and there's a good reason for us to seek after him. And we get an inkling of that now because we know Jesus Christ and we know that, okay, spoiler alert for the next, the next sermon, this is all true in Jesus Christ. I'm going to say this in present progressive because as opposed to what it says here, you see, um, the text here uses a future simple. It says, there shall come a day. That's simple future. That means there's an event in the future. I'm going to use pre uh, present progressive because it means that it's already started. See, Christ has already come, and we know it. The Messiah that's promised in, in Micah 5 that fulfills all of these things in Micah 4 has already come. Many of us already know him. 
Some of us don't. Most of you, any one of, you, any one of us can know him. But there is a kingdom coming. And because there's a kingdom coming, because, as the text says, there will come a day, we should be able to live today in the truth of who God is. Brothers and sisters, we don't need to wait until next week or next year for God to reign in our hearts. And in reigning in our hearts to then be able to live as we ought to live. One of the commentaries I read uh, on Micah says it this way, but what of the present? Should one wait with folded or even praying hands until man's dream and God's decree come true? No. This vision of what Yahweh was to be and do should become a spur to present endeavor. The future greatness of God was to prompt worship here and now, and, 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 and not just worship in the sense of singing songs on Sunday morning. You know, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It's a text of scripture you should remember. You see, the story we're in, the story where we face all of these troubles and discussions, it makes a lot more sense when we recognize what the ending is. Uh, I like to watch a lot of movies, but sometimes I do something strange. I rewatch movies I've already seen. I already know the ending, but I still rewatch the movie. Usually it's actually movies, because as I've said before, I have, I'm a sucker for redemption stories in which I know that the ending is going to fix all of the problems I see in the story. I like rewatching them because I like seeing how, how things work together for good. And that's the kind of story we're in. And the story will make a lot more sense. It will make a lot, more, a lot easier time of us living through it if we remember the ending. The ending that we see here in well, Micah 4 and many other prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Revelation, Daniel. And we know that this is the ending for us because we know, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Brothers and sisters, because we know that the God who we see in Micah 4 is the real God, because we know the glory of who God is, let's walk in the ways that he's called us to. Recognizing that the end is certain, God has already prepared this. Because brothers and sisters, a kingdom is coming and we're part of that kingdom. Let's pray. Lord God, I'm told that it's a bad thing to pray. Uh, may the people hear a much better sermon than I preached. I'm going to repeat that prayer anyway. 
because the fact is your glory and your goodness is far greater than I could ever imagine. And there is no way my words actually expressed it adequately. So Lord God, we pray that you would take my trembling mouth and the words that I said and use them in the hearts of your people, my brothers and sisters whom I love imperfectly and work together to bless them, to know you and to be empowered to live for you. Let's pray in Jesus' name.